Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theolina Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is with us too. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Um, you'll have noticed that our theme tune was different this week, Lucy. Some strong flute work by a listener, David in Johannesburg. It was good, wasn't it? It was good, yes. And it went, and what a what a brilliant idea to think I'll have a go at that tune. I think lockdown affects us all differently. <laughs> which makes me wonder if if anyone else out there would turn their talents on on I don't know on the saxophone or the harmonium or the humble human voice to the task Lucy what what do you think what instrument would you be particularly keen on hearing I'm a big fan of the theremin so if anybody's got a theremin <laughs> and would like to do a, a rendition of our um wonderful theme tune that would be brilliant or the other thing that occurred to me swanee whistle very very difficult oh Oh, yeah, that would be good. The kazoo? No, not the kazoo. Don't do the kazoo. Please, no one do the kazoo. You're, the only thing you're going to get now is kazoo. You do know that. <laughs> I've done it to myself. Uh, but yes, yeah, send them in. Send them in, uh, please. You could tweet the recording at the TLS uh, or email it to me, thea.linarduzzi at the hyphen tls.co.uk. And do tell us where you're listening from, because it's nice to know that there is still a world out there. Uh, Now, coming up on this week's show, John Dickey, an author best known for his work on the Sicilian Mafia, has turned his attention to the long history of the Freemasons. How much overlap is there between these two highly secretive, ritual-loving organisations? Probably not as much as we like to think. And the TLS's Alice Wadsworth will join us with snippets of interest from this week's paper, the podcast equivalent maybe of reading the paper in company. You know, have have you seen this on page 17, dear? That sort of thing. But first, Cal Revely Calder has lately been immersed so very deeply in the infamously wide and rough seas of Beckett studies. He has wrestled with books, including the new Samuel Beckett studies, which groups essays on hermeneutic codes together at the end, as if interpreting text is no longer the aim, he says, as well as with volume seven of the Beckett Digital Manuscript Project, which is to say he has been rather heroic on our behalf. He joins us on the line now to tell us what his exploits have taught him. Hello, Cal. Hi. Um, do you remember your first encounter with Beckett's work? Yeah, I do. I think it was an A-level school trip just up the road to Edinburgh to see Waiting for Godot. I don't think it was the one with Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. There are there were two productions that were around at around the same time. And do you remember what you thought or or felt or appreciated in it? You know what 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 it did to you. What what kind of pulled you into it? If if indeed it did, maybe you hated it. <laughs> No, 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 I, I, I didn't. I was sort of spellbound by it. I remember it being an extremely strong visual impression. You had these 
two men and then sometimes two other men coming in on this near empty stage. And then this sense that there were jokes that you could understand, but also that there was something else kind of going on underneath it, something that it was quite hard to articulate it, except that obviously you had to articulate something because you were doing exams at the same time. And if you didn't articulate things, you wouldn't get any marks. So there was that tension between what was kind of visually strong and then the problem of finding the words to say for that, because all, all of the usual things to say or the stuff that we were being told in class were the usual things to say, never really seemed to capture fully what was going on in front of us. So that you could say, you know, you might talk about Godot and say, well, there are links between the repartee and the play and then vaudeville or musical theatre or links between the setting. You have this single tree, this barren landscape, and then the devastation of Europe during the war and afterwards, which is when Beckett's writing it. And those are all the basic things, the ones that A-level students have to know, and, and then by extension, university students and so on. But it just didn't seem to me at that time as though they explained anything. It was like they were, they were really nice comparisons, but they weren't quite explanations. And then I guess I just carried that feeling on throughout university. I was working on Beckett. I ended up doing a PhD on him, reading his later works where you really do lose pretty much all reference to external events and places and, and things. Not not everything, but almost everything. And the language turns really crystalline and it, it's really inward and it's self-lacerating, but it's also totally clear and literal as well. So I became fascinated by late plays like Footfalls, which is from the late 70s, in which you have a woman who walks backwards and forwards in this very precise, choreographed kind of way. And she sometimes pauses and tells a strange, ghostly story. And since I was doing a PhD, I had to find something to say about this. So I had to read all of this academic stuff that said, well, her movement means this, or, oh, well, she's just narrating her own psychic torture or, or something. But I just couldn't say, shake that sense that there was a gap between how convinced that writing sounded about what it was seeing and how its assertions didn't match up to what I had actually seen in the theatre, what I was seeing in the theatre. And the gap between those two things struck with me. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's that's why I asked you something as soft as how it made you feel to go and see Beckett performed for, for the first time, because the gap, as you say, between the work that is so often done about Beckett, the books that are written about Beckett, are so often completely abstracted. So, you know, taken so far from that that again, without wishing to sound too soft, that human reaction to watching the work or to reading it. Yeah, I think that's the important thing, that, that you end up with writing that doesn't seem to be connected entirely, or even sometimes to a small degree, to the response that anybody would actually have there in the theatre or somewhere else, you know, just sitting reading the work at home. You have something that does, as you say, seem abstracted and seems to be speaking in a very particular kind of stylistic language that doesn't really have a great deal to do with the way people actually do talk about these things, the way people actually do describe these things to each other. From the academic's point of view, wouldn't wouldn't they say that um, they're not dealing with the primary response of how you feel when you see it? They are doing a critical response, which can be many degrees back, I guess, and that they're exploring the minutiae of what things might mean which seems to be a valid, I mean, not everyone is, is interested into it, but that, but that's valid work, isn't it? It is, I suppose. But I, I guess I'm just preoccupied by the question of what all of that comes to mean and whether the act of fixing someone's first impression in words is in some way going to undercut the thing that meant the most to them the first time round. So that a lot of the work, or well, the larger that an academic field becomes, the greater the risk, it seems to me, that the kind of thing it's pursuing, to some extent, can be at such a remove from the thing that made people care about that work in the first place, that it can become kind of, I don't want to say irrelevant, because then that just makes it sound unimportant, but that the particular kinds of things that got you going originally might just become very, very far away. And I think that might be more the case with Beckett than with other writers. I suppose um, in your question, Lucy, the key word was, was might. And one of the things that you suggest, Cal, is that sometimes might goes out of the window and it becomes quite a, quite a forceful thing. You know, this, this forces us to confront the truth of Beckett's work that is da-da-da-da-da, that, sort of, that sort of tone. Yeah, that there's a kind of certainty to it, which is slightly peculiar 
Um, I mean, it's one book that's quite good at not doing that is the Emily Moan book that I cover in the piece because she's quite good at gesturing to the the sort of spectre of things like allusions or references in Beckett's late work, which when they're not actually necessarily completely there, but she doesn't wave her hands away around and go, oh, look over there, it's an illusion. You know, that's the kind of thing you should be spotting. She's just very careful in how she gestures towards them. It might be particular to Beckett's work because as his career goes on, as I said before, you you have the the kind of stripping out of the most obvious references to other things, the most obvious allusions to other things. It becomes so much more concentrated and compressed, especially in the style. And then the irony of that is it produces a kind of free-for-all where anything can be pressed into the service of any given argument. And I mentioned this sort of enlistment in the piece, a thing that the scholar Ronan MacDonald talks about, how anything in Beckett kind of can and has at this point been made to mean anything, which might seem like a form of argumentative freedom, but it's not really a virtue unless all you care about is just continuing Beckett studies as a as a kind of mini industry. The most important thing seems to me to be to look at what texts actually do mean to people who encounter them. You know, what what do you think? What do you feel? Tell me, not in this kind of grey investment banker sort of language. Tell me in your voice. Because once you fix those impressions in words, it's very hard to go back to the kind of uncertainty that was at the heart of that that first experience in the theatre, as opposed to the certainty you then have to, to feign on the page when you publish your account of what you think. We've seen a similar thing with, with other writers. Um, most recently, we were talking about how Joyce Studies has sort of become a bit of a runaway industry as well that carries you quite far away. Uh, you know, and Joyce had his famous line about keeping the professors happy. I wonder, you know, at the risk of sounding a bit grand, whether we're coming to some sort of moment here where where we want to return to the work in, in, in a way, we want to personalise it more and what that might mean in the context of, hmm. of academic work. Yeah, it would be nice to think so. I mean, I, there is something true at the heart of the genetic critical approach, taking all of these drafts and manuscripts and so on and kind of studying them in themselves, which is, there is a purity to it. It's looking at what the author wrote, semi-obsessively, but that's valuable too. And kind of taking that as being the backstory to the final thing. Now, maybe sometimes the priorities there get a bit confused and a lot of the piece in the TLS is spent kind of criticising mm-hmm. some of the ways in which that goes wrong. But but you're right that it, it does discard some of the slightly more elaborate or maybe kind of airy speculations, which can just seem to be beside the point. I mean, at least with genetic criticism, mm. the stuff they're looking at must partly be to the point because it is the stuff by the author themselves. Exactly. I suppose it's the point is you've got to know exactly what you're dealing with before you mm, exactly. react around it in, 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 in a way. Um, I like the idea that the whole bucket industry is a kind of Beckettian circle which yeah, people wander is. up and down <laughs> try, trying to make extrapolations from something where they don't know what it means but I'm sure that's that's not the reason it is but that is actually quite a Beckettian thing in itself but part of the problem is it also the the way it's written as you as you mentioned which is a sort of it's difficult to define but it's a sort of academies I don't know how you say it but that's not the fault of the people writing it is it really it's sort of what's it called the research excellence framework which demands that you publish things and I think I don't know I don't know about this correct me if I'm wrong but to pass muster they sort of need to be written in that sort of way is that right yeah I mean I'm not sure exactly myself because I managed to get out of that world and so I don't I don't quite know what the process of submission and, and the judgment is but yeah roughly speaking you're producing something which is able to be gauged and marked and can be treated as you know this is a piece of research output, I say, as I hold it up and get a gold star for doing it. And it is exactly that line, I think it's from Adorno, about industrialism making souls into things. You know, academia is an industry and it has effects on has effects on people. And yeah, you're right, it takes place at the level of the level of style. You know, this this supposedly normative style that is clear and is efficient and conveys information. There's this idea that it must therefore be healthy just because it's the norm and that to question that outside of places like well, like podcasts or conversations in the pubs when there were pubs can't be, a, can't be a serious thing for people to do. It can't be a professional thing to do. That is the norm. But I just wonder if we should turn that around. The idea that this kind of style is adding anything to the world seems to me to be a really big claim. It's a style that's it's designed to make you feel as though writing should be packaged and should be sellable. And it's a style that also makes you feel guilty for leaving anything personal to you near your work. It has this immensely coercive effect upon 
the people who come up through the system and then are forced to write inside it. But that's not what style ever actually is in writing. It's not just like an epiphenomenon or a box into which you pour ideas. It's, it's a matter of human conduct. It's about how you address someone and how you behave towards them in prose. And, and feigning neutrality, which is what that academies seeks to do, it's really a demand being made upon you, upon the way that you you think and the way you behave. And it dovetails really perfectly with a, like a homogenized world of corporate offices and regressive, top-heavy, unequal economic structures, which, no surprise, is basically what the modern university is. So it, it's crowding the horizon of what people could actually do if they had more space. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, I mean, as you say, it's perhaps goes along with the marketization of putting a price on what an art arts degree costs or, you know, that kind of thing, or any degree costs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and also that you have to produce, as you say, you have to become a producer, so you have to produce output. Mm. You, you do, and it's, it's, uh, it's an imposition. I mean, even if it's very difficult to rebel against from the inside, it's, it's always worth noting that this kind of, what you produce in this style when you're done has essentially usurped the freshness of the experience you first have when you read the thing or you saw the thing. And maybe that's just the way things are and it's very difficult to change them, but it's a fact that should never be ignored. People don't think this way. People don't write this way, except when they're forced to. They never have. And you find loads of brilliant young people trapped inside what the university as an idea, as a model has become, this kind of hopelessly marketized space. And they're, they're unable to change that, even as they see that it's changing them and the way that they go about thinking or writing. I suppose that's, um, you know, again, when I'm wondering whether whether there will be a shift or not, that it's both hopeless, as, as you said just now, but there's also a sense of hope in that there are all of these young academics who will, you know, who are hitting their heads against a system that can't, you know, be as satisfying as perhaps they would like or, or, or allow them to write and research the things that they want to. So, Perhaps, 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 you know, perhaps it will, perhaps it will change. I like, I like your observation of a couple of the books that you, that you take in. Uh, you talk about Connor Carville's um, Samuel Beckett and the visual arts and Emily Morin's Beckett's political imagination. So, I mean, perhaps tell us about one of those and, and what it is that, that works and, and, and strikes you as different about their approach. Yeah, well, what's good about those in particular, I think, and, and this is something I reckon they share is that they're very uncertain about themselves. They're not at all grand. They don't think they've got it sussed out. They don't treat reading as a kind of a process or an operation where you you take something X and something Y and then you multiply them or whatever and you get conclusion Z. They're full of hedging and fainting. They have uh, caution. They're very careful with verbs in particular. So things in Beckett suggest other things. They don't show them. They don't mean them. I mean, there's a lovely moment in, in Morin's, I think it's her essay in the new Samuel Beckett studies, not in the book, but she's she's talking about Beckett's 50s texts and relating them, which is a fairly unusual thing to do, to the conflict in what was then French Indochina. And she has a line, she says, the texts tentatively press upon historical intersections. And that's really lovely. It's exactly what you can say, you know, tentatively and pressing rather than just, you know, meaning or showing. She says exactly what you can say and no more. So what you have in their style is an account of Beckett and his work, which gives you the picture of a person thinking or using writing to process their thoughts rather than just, you know, picking up the thoughts they already have and beating you around the head with them, which is what some of the others are like. Um, and the, the, these books crucially also show that there's, there's you know, plenty to still learn about Beckett from Beckett, as it were, you know, without needing to kind of force yourself or your theory onto the stage or or onto the work. So Emily Morin is, she has an interesting line on, on Beckett's involvement with the resistance, for example. Yeah, she talks about how some of the things he remembers to do with his conduct during the war or the things he saw during the war can't possibly be correct because you know, the, the roundup of the Jews didn't happen in this particular part of Paris, it happened somewhere else. And his memories of other things tend to be slightly incorrect or skewed. And she doesn't call that out per se. She just says that, well, this might be characteristic of, of what it's like to try and remember something after a massive national trauma. So here are a set of facts. Here is a way of reading those facts, which is infused with my particular impression of them. I've kind of given you the story and a way of seeing it, but I'm not pressing it into the service of like a final definite conclusion that you have to take away and 
kind of own for yourself. It's it's full of reticence and it's full of human feeling. There's something kind of generous about that style of writing as opposed to the X mean X plus Y means Z kind of thing. And and her book in particular is is full of care in that kind of way. It has lots of nice little you know gobbets of fact, like the fact that Beckett only ever donated to one political party, which was the ANC in South Africa in I think around 1967 or 68. Um, but it doesn't try and sort of, you know, as I say, force those things to mean more than they necessarily do mean. Because actually, there's a sort of deeper truth in all of this, which is that human lives don't really mean more than they necessarily mean. They can be made to mean things, but that's always betraying something of just the contingency and chance and the lacunae that come with telling people's stories. And in fact, you quote um, that line from from Beckett himself, the danger is in the neatness of identifications. Yeah, the, ir- the, the irony of that being that it's one of those great lines from Beckett. And, and Morin mentions another one about, you know, fail again, fail better, that everyone quotes all the time. So even those lines about not knowing or not saying more than you need to say end up being fetishized and made more than we make more of them than we necessarily need mm. to make, if that makes sense. And, and, and Connor Carville, um, it sounds like he manages a, a similar balance to Morin. So, I mean, what do we get in, in Samuel Beckett and the visual arts? Yeah, he tells the tale of, of Beckett's sort of years traveling through Germany and seeing various forms of visual art and also his relationship with a number of artists from Bram van Velde to. Um, Giacometti and others and he sort of tries to look into some of the slightly less appreciated forms of Beckett's artistic eye as it were so his interest in Dutch portraiture for instance um, which is not really you know no one really sort of says very much about that but he talks about how it's characteristic of Beckett's sense of ambivalence and that the forms of evasion and reticence I think is his phrase that Beckett might be um, finding in Dutch portraits have something to do with Beckett's own work, but again, it's suggestion mm. rather than absolute statement. Well, I, I like I like the detail that he was particularly drawn to paintings of figures' backs. Mm, yeah, yeah, he's really nice on things like that, and he also has a bunch of sort of mini correctives to what I think are received impressions of Beckett. So he talks a lot about how Beckett's favourite artists were basically never completely abstract; they were always thinking about biomorphic sorts of form. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, that that detail I mentioned about about the backs. So, and also, he could just change his opinions from time to time. He, you know, he used to love Cezanne, then he dismissed him later on. So, also, he didn't have one constant position that could just be taken as a sort of a standard. He moved from point to point and felt differently about things from t- day to day, as as all of us do. And that inconstancy is is probably at the heart of what it is to be a half decent art critic, which Beckett was. So then, Cal, on a, on a final note, is there a, is there a work that, you know, after all the masses of reading that you've done for this, this review essay, that is there anything that you wanted, you felt you wanted to go back to, to, to remind yourself of, of Beckett as Beckett, as it were? Yeah, I did go back, actually, right after filing the piece to Beckett's poetry, about which nobody really writes. I think partly that's because the early stuff is really terrible. Um, kind of like Joyce's poetry, which is also really terrible. But then the later stuff is is beautiful. It's the words are highly distilled. They're highly chosen. There's a gorgeous sequence from the late seventies called Merlitonade, which refers both to a, a merliton, which is a kind of toy flute, but also the phrase verre de merliton, which is sort of doggerel or, or trash, basically. And these are little poems just about small individual things, like a a step becomes another step or a word becomes or doesn't become another word. But they're so self-contained, you couldn't add or subtract a single syllable from them. It's really exquisite. And it's funny because nobody knows Beckett as a poet in English. I mean, like generally speaking, and it's not much different in in France either. But those poems, I think they deserve to be better known because when you're trying to translate them or even just to construe some sense from them, they're really super examples of that knowing what you don't know thing that we've been talking about, the sort of human tendency to make mistakes and and learning how we can all be drawn into that all the time. Because I think if there's any point to Beckett's work at all for the purpose of you know, reading and thinking and even the purpose beyond that of like ethics, I have to believe that it's reminding us of that. Well, Cal Reverly Calder, um, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you.
Still to come on the show, the Virago book of women travellers, or the women who wouldn't wait, Borges in Inverness, and a surprisingly breezy book about the Freemasons whose strange cult, the author argues, made the modern world. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free via Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen, so you'll never miss an episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narduzzi. And before we get to the history of the Freemasons, we're joined by Alice Wadsworth. Her fingers covered in ink and paper cuts from scouring this week's issue. Alice, welcome. Hello. Hello. Um, You bring us news from this week's In Brief pages, that double page spread of short reviews that is really one of the best parts of the paper, isn't it? Or am I biased? Lucy and I both edited this section. Yeah, we did. <laughs> so we both, think it's, we both think it's brilliant. No, it's wonderful in Bruce, because you could just you could just get anything. You get eight terrific and very, very different things next to each other, or nine. And no, yeah, I think it's marvelous. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um well so so this week, Alice, what in particular has caught your eye? Uh well I've really enjoyed Mary Morris's review of the Virago Book of Women Travellers, which is also by a Mary Morris. But oh, it's edited by Mary Morris. Yeah, <laughs> it's edited by an unrelated Mary Morris. Very important to specify. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning, uh, Morris kind of sets out women's literature in this period. It covers about 300 years from end of the 1600s to about the 1980s, uh, are usually waiting often for love. So she's looking to collect the travel writings of women who are not waiting and have set out on boat or bicycle, camel or dugout canoe to kind of find their fortune or something maybe less desirable. And it's got some fun and interesting people in it. So there's Maud Parrish, who fled her marriage at 19 and made her living playing the banjo for Yukon prospectors. That just sounds like a fun thing to do anyway. Not the fleeing the marriage, I'm saying, but to, <laughs> but to earn your living by playing the banjo for Yukon prospectors. Yeah. So you know, they never tell you that at careers day at school, do they? No, I wish I'd known that was an option, really. And, <laughs> and as um, Mary points out while reviewing it, it's quite nice to read about her experiences kind of, well, we can't maybe uh, move around quite so much um, and 
one of her quotes is, even now I feel the zip boom hurrah bang of all that dance hall and the what we do we care spirit in the air. That's what you get with the Yukons. Mm, yeah. And then also a little, uh, a nice quote from Francis Trollope uh, in Domestic, Domestic Manners of the Americans, uh, the mum of Anthony Trollope, showing a satirical eye, saying of a neighbour that she lived a short distance from us and I'm sure in, intended to be a very good neighbour, but her violent intimacy made me dread to pass her door. Oh dear. <laughs> I, really, I really like the sound of um, Ethel Tweedy. Oh yeah. Um, quite apart from the fact that she's got a, a wonderful name but um mary morris the writer not the editor of the book points out that some of the writers have uh, an explicit agenda as they set out and ethel tweedy's agenda um was to encourage women to reject side saddle uh, so this it turns out was on a trip to iceland she wrote a book called a girl's ride in iceland in 1895 uh, and it was basically her case was do as the locals do uh, and Icelandic women did not ride side saddle. She said, ride like a man. I've ridden an Icelandic pony, not side saddle. In Iceland? Just saying. Yes. Oh, there you go. You should be in this <laughs> book, Lucy. So, Ethel, <laughs> Ethel Tweedy paved the way, and I'm very grateful to her. <laughs> Overwhelmingly, though, um, it's true that the stories that we hear about in that volume, because it's a it's a reissue of a book from 1993, isn't it? And it's not it doesn't have any new material. So you do end up with, um, as the reviewer points out, quite a skewed sense of, of voices. You know, they're overwhelmingly the stories of people who were privileged. I know that Ethel Tweedy's father was the one to encourage her to go on this journey and encouraged her to write the book. I think he wrote a foreword or, or, or something as well. So, I mean, the example that you gave before of Maud is one of only quite a few people who weren't coming from an incredibly privileged perspective. Yeah, they mentioned there are very few of them. There's also Boxcar Bertha, who apparently lived on the railways in um, 1930s. But these are kind of small glimpses, whereas mostly it's yeah more privileged uh, women. And it also isn't always necessarily for the best. So Emily Han sets off for China with the intention of becoming an opium addict. Uh, successfully. That's another one that they don't tell you about in careers day at school. Kind of imagine why. (laughs) Um, Travel does seem to be a theme across the In Brief pages this week because I mean they do quite often nod to each other pieces across the In Brief pages but in this one we have you know it starts with Dante's pilgrimage because Jamie McKendrick the poet and translator reviewing the final installment of Alistair Gray's version he Englished um, Alistair Gray Englished the commedia in prosaic verse, as he as he put it. Uh, and then we move on to Derek Goldstein's review of Red Sands, which is a book of reportage and recipes from Central Asia by Caroline Eden. And there's a novel about Kurt Schwitter's time in exile after, after the Nazis classed his art degenerate. So everyone's moving on these pages. There is a, a yeah, and there's a brilliant bit in um, the review of Red Sands, where uh, she's talking about the sacredness of milk in Kazakh culture. If you don't know how to milk a horse, she's going to tell you how to milk a horse. And how to make the dried curds that gave Genghis Khan's warriors strength. I, I remember reading this, that they, they used to drink fermented mare's milk. And if you want to really, you know, get a bit of get up and go to your day, then you drink fermented mare's milk and uh, that's um, that'll give it to you. <laughs> first, first, you've got to milk the horse, can I say? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can just imagine it appearing in Whole Foods, though, fermented mare's milk. I'm sure, I'm sure it's only a matter of time. I bet it's, it's probably really expensive as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a travel-based story on the letters page too, Lucy, uh, which actually picks up a conversation uh, on this podcast a few weeks ago, doesn't yes, it? Yes. And... I'm sort of hanging my head in shame here. Why? Oh, because... Because I scoffed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually, we did scoff a little bit. So we had David Gallagher on talking about Borges and he reviewed uh, this book by Jay Perini, which Jay Perini said, he, he said, Jay Perini set out the details of what did sound like a really improbable kind of road trip that he, Jay Perini, took with Borges in the highlands of, of Scotland in the very early 70s when Perini was, was young. And David Gallagher said... I mean, I can't. He, he said, said it's, it sounds extremely unlikely. It sounds like a kind of a jeu d'esprit kind of. Or a Borghese. I think I called it a Borghesian prank. So, you know, more for me, because then the week after that, we had a letter from Jay Perini 
saying, I drove Borges to Inverness. And he says, we made stops along the way, but he, he says that he embellished it and that he's invented the dialogue, but that the trip actually happened. And then in this week is a letter from someone called John Hanson Mitchell, who says, in the spring of 1971, I was undertaking a bicycle trip through the Scottish Highlands, stopped for a while in Inverness. While I was there, I met an odd couple in a pub young American student and a Spanish-speaking older man. And then he says, uh, through a bizarre combination of events, after uh, Perini's Borges and me came out, I realised the young American was Perini and the older man no less a figure than Borges. So, you know, it, it, let's say it did happen. Well, I feel I feel reproached for my lack of imagination. Well, no, because he does say... My disbelieving nature. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you might want to keep hold of your, um, at least possibly your sceptical nature, because the next subject might require it. Um, if I were to mention one of Britain's most successful cultural exports, comparable to sports like tennis, soccer and golf, what would you think of? Probably not Freemasonry, but that is indeed the claim. And the book that makes this claim is called The Craft, How Freemasons Made the Modern World by John Dickey. And our own Ruth Skur has reviewed it for us. So without revealing any secrets, she's here to talk about it with us today. Ruth, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, first of all, and as usual, I'm afraid this is a really horrible question. Could you maybe outline for us briefly what Freemasonry is? Well, notoriously, Freemasonry and its history is complex. Um, a very basic definition from the Encyclopedia Britannica is the largest worldwide secret society. But in his book, John Dickey points out that many Freemasons today contest the idea that they belong to a secret society. Instead, they see themselves as belonging to a society or club that has secrets. So a more accurate definition would be the largest fraternal and charitable institution in the United Kingdom or perhaps even the world. The origins of Freemasonry can be traced to Scotland in the 16th century to a man named William Shaw, who is thought to be the first man in Scotland to be referred to as an architect. Um, the term Freemason originally referred to a mason who worked in free stone, so fine-grained sandstone or limestone, Dickey explains that the name became associated with the accepted Masons during the turmoil of the English Civil War and simultaneously with a set of secrets which, quotes, must never be written. These include passwords, signs and handshakes. Much later, under the British Empire, Freemasonry was widely exported around the world. And then it grew into, uh, into the society. I have to say, in that... In that... Definition, the thing that surprises me is it's a one of the largest charitable foundations. Yes, um, being an upright person in the community and doing charitable works is a very important part of the, of the understanding of, of, of being a Freemason. At what point then did something that sounds quite dry and serious, you know, a body to regulate the craft of masonry and its, mm. and its dealings with the authorities and so on, at what point did that start to become bound up with conspiracy theories and the secret handshakes you alluded to all that sort of thing I mean is the darker side much more recent was there a kind of triggering event or how did it come about so the conspiracy theories had a huge impetus during the French Revolution and so before the the revolution Freemasonry had been very um, important in in France and during the revolution, there was a big clampdown on it. And the Roman Catholic historians of the revolution started to, to suggest that the revolution had been prepared by the Freemasons. So then the sense that there was some kind of conspiracy or, or, or secrecy that was anti-Roman Catholic in the French context became very prominent. And I had a strange sort of personal um, experience of that because when I published my book on Robespierre, I sent it to um, the Roman Catholic priest I'd known in my childhood. And he wrote back to me saying that he thought it was obvious Robespierre was a Freemason, a terrible person. He hated my book and he was going to put it in the church jumble sale. <laughs> Did you put that on the back of the cover as one of the blurbs? <laughs> Obviously, I was really upset at the time, but I've come to realise that that was it, he was just part of 
that old um, hostility between Freemasons and the Catholic Church in France in particular. Certainly things like things like that, you know, what, what your priest was uh, was feeling about uh, Robespierre. And then when you think about um, the the scandal in, in Italy in the 70s and 80s, which, you know, roped in bankers and politicians and industrialists and members of the exiled royal family and the Vatican, all of this together, that, I mean, that must have tarnished the Freemasons' image yeah, so, so, so much. When I was um, looking online, I, I wish I'd gone to it at the time, I saw this review of, it, of um, an interesting exhibition at the, the Grand Masonic Lodge in, in London, and they had put on an exhibition about the impact of the revolution on Freemasonry, because at the time, when the revolution happened in France, Freemasonry in Britain was at its highest point and they had just completed that grand building in, in, in the middle of London, etc. And then obviously the uh, conspiracy theories and the suspicion of the Masons sort of started to come across the, the channel and took them, you know, in, in a sense by, by surprise, I think, because they had become very recognised and um, very, very sort of um, respectable in, in Britain. Yes, I was going to say I thought they were they were very respectable. And you say, um, I'm sorry, I'm sort of slightly jumping ahead to, to something else you say later on in the piece, that you say that it could be revolutionary and reactionary. Um, but was it, because there's sort of two sides, aren't there? There's the, did it reinforce the class differences? Or say in the revolution, was it a way for people to come together and actually erode class differences and sort of do good works? Yeah, well, I think um, I really agree with the main point of Dickie's book, which is that you always have to look really carefully at the social context to understand how Freemasonry is operating. I mean, that's his, his main thing is, you know, instead of getting hung up on trying to penetrate and understand the sort of the secrets, that, that's not so important. What's more important is to see how Freemasonry functions in different times and, and, and different places. So with the revolutionary and um, reactionary contrast, I think it's actually more about the relationship between Freemasonry and the state than about the relationship between classes within the state. So certain states at different times have been incredibly hostile to Freemasons and others have regarded Freemasons as useful for furthering the state's purposes. And whilst the French Revolution more or less put an end to, to Freemasonry in, in France, it, afterwards it underwent a huge revival um, under Napoleon. That's interesting in itself, though, because, I mean, Dickie, um, you, you point out how he assembles a, a large cast of characters and, and some of them are, are well known, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin, Rudyard Kipling, they were Masons. Um, but, I mean, do we get a sense of the role that the organisation did play in their lives? Because, you know, what they what they got from it, so to speak, because we know that you're not allowed to, or we believe <laughs> that you're not allowed to talk politics you're not allowed to talk about religion mm, that's right as a mason are you so i mean in that sense i suppose it's difficult because they probably don't write down uh, or leave memoirs about what they gained from being members so it would probably not be very common to do that i was reading um i mean i know we, we might come to this later with the idea of women who are in britain excluded from being Masons, but that wasn't true on the continent. And um, Napoleon's wife, Josephine, was a Mason before she met him and continued to be involved in that. I was reading about um, research being done in her letters. Sometimes she signs them with the parallel lines and, and that are considered to be signs of Masonic membership. So I guess there might be um, in people's archives and, and letters, uh, signs that you wouldn't necessarily be um, noticing unless you were looking for it. The sort of the written equivalent of the secret handshake type thing. Exactly. Um, so let's let's talk about women. I, I didn't know that women were, uh, um, I mean, before I read your, your piece, I didn't know that women were allowed in any form at all. So what, so was Josephine like a full member of a, of a lodge? So it's, it's complicated, yes. Um, so on the continent, um, there were lodges for women and, and they have um, a sort of special status. And she, she certainly was. And then obviously under Napoleon's 
regime, when Freemasonry becomes protected and, and starts to flourish, his brothers are, are Freemasons. Josephine's son is a Freemason. And she certainly, there, there are accounts of her um, being initiated into a lodge in Strasbourg in, in 1805. And um, I'm not sure where it is, but you allegedly we, we have her um, apron, her Masonic apron, which is the first gift that you receive when you enter a lodge. And that is a symbol that goes right back to the, the guilds and the trades and the sort of the, the working aprons that, that tradesmen would have worn to protect themselves. Well, when you think of, um, because there is a personal connection for Dickie, you know, he doesn't say that he, he is a Mason. We don't think he is a Mason, but his, his grandfather, uh, he mentions, was a Scottish rail, uh, railwayman. Yes. He became a Freemason in, a Freemason in Aberdeen in, in 1919. And you say, like many thousands of soldiers returning from the Great War. So it, it once seems like something that was almost in that context offering something like, you know, a substitute sense of camaraderie. Exactly. Um, or, you know, also satisfying that desire maybe for pomp if they were in the you know the upper echelons of the army say or just just sort of um belonging as well um, this and and the sense of maybe even community that that there is but it's interesting in the um Dickie book because although he does talk about the way in which in some instances women were able to be in these in these lodges that were um accepted and there's all kinds of complicated rules around that essentially he does present freemasonry as a brethren as a brotherhood as a sort of very male eccentric almost like a cult really when and the whole point of it is this sort of male friendship at the heart of it so that's a very important uh, argument in the book um, and I think you say that his line on the secrecy says the point of the secrecy is secrecy itself, i.e. to make it mysterious, but n- not that any of the terrible things will actually happen if you break the rules. Yes. So he quotes, I mean, he's he's got a sort of humorous tone, uh, Dickie, and, and that's not because he's being dismissive. I mean, I think that's because he is looking at this from the outside. So he's trying to explain, well, all these, you know, you'll be cut in half, you'll be burned if you break the secrets of the fraternity, etc. Um, what he argues is that you know the point of all this secrecy is as you say the secrecy itself and I I think what he's doing there is saying look you know Freemasons aren't really hiding anything it's a sort of counter argument to the conspiracy theories and in the past that that the fact that there were secrets associated with um, the Freemasons has caused a, a lot of trouble and suspicion and even persecution in some cases. So I think he's picking up really on that distinction that I mentioned earlier between a secret society and a society that has secrets. And he's very much on the side of the Freemasons. And he's saying, all right, you know, they've got some supposedly secret rituals, but actually it's not that difficult to find out, you know, what some of them are. And he gives a short account of the initiation ceremonies, etc. He does describe it as a as a cult of death, though. What does that actually mean? He doesn't actually describe it as um, a cult of death. What he says is it's about death and ultimately about overcoming your fear of death. And for that reason, it uses symbols of death or he calls them emblems of mortality, like skulls and bones and tombs and urns. And it incorporates all those things into its rituals. But it's not um, a deathly or I mean, from some people have suspected a sort of satanic kind of um, cult at at all. It's an attempt to actually overcome the fear of death um, through these rituals which incorporates those um, signifiers of death in, in into the practices. To go back to Napoleon you say that um, you know Josephine was um, I mean I'm talking about Napoleon because I know that you've got a book coming out on Napoleon yes. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so we'll just uh, have a little a bit of pre-publicity there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> His, so his so most of his family were and Josephine was. Do we know whether he was? So this is a subject of huge interest and debate, as you can imagine. And um, you know, some people think he was, but there's there's no evidence that he was. 
And in fact, uh, when he was in exile on St. Helena, he made some pretty disparaging remarks um, comparing Freemasonry to a pile of imbeciles who assemble for good cheer and the execution of many ridiculous follies. So there's a sense that he was uh, not up for wearing the apron and you know participating in the series. However, he was hugely tolerant of Freemasonry in, in um, 1798 when Napoleon leads the, the army into, into Egypt. There were definitely Freemasons um, who accompanied him and they become very struck by the imagery in Egypt, um, the, the, the pyramids and, 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 the, and the symbols, etc. And they bring that back to France and it enters into um, this new revival of Freemasonry that, that is happening there. Okay, and we'll, we'll, we'll have to hear um, about the rest of Napoleon uh, later on in the year when we hope you will come back and talk to us again about your book, Ruth. Thank you, Lucy. But for now, um, secret handshakes all round and thank you very much for talking to us. Bye. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Cal Revely, Colter, Ruth Skur and Alice Wadsworth. And also, of course, to David in Johannesburg for the flute. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rugby union referee Nigel Owens talks candidly about coming to terms with his sexuality, the impact it had on his mental health, and having tried to take his own life at 24, how rugby eventually saved him. People say, you know, you should never look back, always look forward. Well, looking back is important as well because looking back and help you move forward past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson nigel owens in his own words now available as a podcast listen on the times radio app or wherever you get your podcasts here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.